right. Good. Good morning. Um, I don't. I don't really know how to begin uh, this morning, other than just rambling through some some thoughts. And I know, though, um, at the risk of being offensive, and I know that already sounds scary, but I hear my heart. I I don't mean to be offensive. It's not my heart at all. Um, I know, and I'll say it this way, knowing that that fear is already out there. I know these are songs that have played a part in in building faith, uh, helped connect God and to others, uh, helped get through all kinds of trying and testing and painful times. These are songs are very meaningful, but uh, admittedly, there are some hymns and some songs that we sing that I have no idea what the words mean. I'll say it like that. Um, I think last week we were, yeah, it was last week we were singing this song, Living by Faith. Wonderful song. Uh, Man, but... I know that he safely will carry me through. No matter what evils be tied, I have no idea what be tied means. <laughs> Maybe you do. Um, I have looked at it recently, and I do kind of have an idea of what it means. Um, or this song, uh, 23B. It's like our anthem, right? Secure is life for mortal mind. God holds the, the germ within his hand. When I think of germ, I think of little kids and boogers, and I, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I don't understand. I didn't look that up. I still don't know what that means or this. Beautiful. Oh, I love this song. Oh, hail the power of Jesus. The angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. I do not know what a diadem is. I do want to crown him Lord of all. Royals, I, there's something there. I, I just, I don't know. Um, need I say more? <laughs> there's a balm in Gilead. I, I did talk to Miss Ravonda, and she said that there's an actual, like a, a balm in Gilead, like a soothing balm. And so that makes a little more sense. Um, no idea what tis midnight on Olive's brow. Uh, no idea what it means. And then kind of to lead us into today, I, I really enjoy leading this song as well. Oh, the grace, how great a dead, and how daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. What is a fetter? And why should I bind my wandering heart to thee? And this is, this is the only one that I really wanted to get to. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Are you thinking of Christmas right now? (laughs) I say those things to say our songs have beautiful meaning when you understand the words. Um, When you get a grasp of, of these words that have such deep meaning. Ebenezer is a memorial stone. It means stone of help. It's a physical reminder to point people's hearts back to what God has done. 
to remember. And the book of Joshua is filled with these memorial stones, with these memory moments. And why do we need Ebenezer's? Why do we need sticky notes or phone notifications or engraved memorabilia with our anniversaries and the like? Or even stuff set by the door so we don't walk out without it? That tendency to forget seems to be part of our DNA. And it's the root of all our problems. Since Eden's loss, God has been trying over and over again to ingrain in his people's head who he is and what he has done for them so that they wouldn't forget him. So they would trust him. Does that sound familiar? It's a song. I'm not sure what verse we're in today, but we're still singing that same song. If you would, let's pray together. God, I have been wrestling um, all week with, with the book of Joshua. I don't know how to do it justice. I don't know how to. I'm just confused by it. Um, I, I, I've spent all the first few weeks of reading the story, and it seems to say one thing about who you are, and then Joshua just seems different. And I want to wrestle with my church family with that this morning. So give me wisdom in that. Give, give us listening ears. Give my heart. Let it be teachable. God, I just want to, to paint you clearly as the God of love, as the God who desires to bless all nations and who loves people, even my enemy. Let's wrestle with that today, God. I trust you. And may we hear your word. And may you give me the gift of preaching that I need today. In Jesus' name, church says, amen. As we arrive in the book of Joshua, and week seven of the story, let's remember what God has just done for Israel. Uh, he's answered the promises to all the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's given them cities and land that they didn't set up or work for. After they left Egypt, God has sheltered them in the desert. If God slept in while his people were in the desert, they would have died. If he forgot to give them bread or daily water, they would die in a dry and weary land where there is not much, if any, water. They depend on God for everything. But now as, you, as we reach the book of Joshua, they are entering the promised land. They're crossing through the Jordan River. Everything is right there in their little refrigerators. The training wheels are now coming off. Moses, for 40 years, has led a, has wandered through, has taken a grumbling and complaining group of people uh, through the desert. And then what? He dies on Mount Nebo with this beautiful view of the promised land. But God says, this isn't for you, Moses. This is for Joshua. Forty years of waiting for a whole generation of people to die except for two, Caleb and Joshua. I did the math. Forty years, it's estimated 1.2-ish million Israelites. Forty years, that would have been about 85 people a day that had to die. Nobody wants 
that ministry. But God has what we might call a stubborn love. He's brought you out of a land not to leave you, but to bring you to something new. God is committed. God finishes what he starts. And a huge message that Joshua is laying at our feet this morning is God always prepares you for what is next. So be strong and courageous because God goes with you wherever you go. For Joshua, the time had come. All the years of, of learning beside Moses, the people are afraid, but, but God gives them these words to remember, I am with you, be strong and courageous. Joshua tells the people, make yourselves ready, prepare, consecrate yourselves. He sends spies into the land, much like Moses did 40 years ago. This time he only sent two. They arrive in Jericho and end up in this little just in the outcrop in this little house, this thing in the outside of the wall where there's a, a lady named Rahab and she houses the spies. And it's not long after that that the walls come tumbling down. And so it begins. Some of the hardest text in scripture to read. The last few weeks, the stories we've been reading have had a deep underlying message. Who is this God? How is he different than the man-created gods? A God who's so close at creation that he kneels down into the dirt and he breathes his ruach, his breath, into man. He resuscitates, not that Adam was ever resuscitated, but he breathes life into humanity. And then there's this walking, talking serpent that Nobody seems to ever be in awe of or like, wait, what? And he tempts and he, and he tries to convince humanity, Adam and Eve, that God can't be trusted. And they listen and they're filled with shame. They hide themselves in shame. And so God makes provision. He takes away their shame and he provides for them. There's Cayenne and Havel, Cain and Abel. And they decide, God's given us so much, why don't we bring a sacrifice back to him? And so on the way, God comes to Cain and says, hey, there's something in your heart. Um, is something bumping? Do y'all hear? Whatever. There's something in your heart that's not right. There is a beast that is crouching at the door. And if you keep going this direction, it's going to devour you. Cain doesn't listen. He murders his brother. And yet still, still God provides. God still protects him. When the earth floods, God's promises from now on are to always take the punishment that's meant, that's pointed at, that's aimed at humankind. Never again will it rain down on humanity destruction. The bow is now pointed towards the heavens, towards him. He will take the punishment from now on. He remembers Noah. God's called this whole nation now through a promise made to Abraham to be his representatives to the world, to be a blessing to all nations, a light in the encroaching darkness. He's been in their midst. He's miraculously freed them from bondage. 
all while dismantling and crushing every God Egypt has created. God has physically led Israel with fire and cloud through the desert. He provides. We've run into story after story after story after story of God's love, of his acceptance, of his forgiveness, his love for all people and all nations. We've seen a God that is a hundred or that is a thousand to three or four. Like this in Exodus, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children of the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. His scale is way off, a thousand to three or four in punishment. But now the book of Joshua, I struggle. Story after story of going in and killing everyone and everything. And I find the story of the conquests to be inconsistent with the character of God and what he's been asking his people to do. I have no idea how to draw a conclusion today. So I merely want to peel back the conversation. There are many thoughts to research, to read, to listen to from men and women much smarter than I will ever be. Some have suggested that the conquest never actually happened. That the book of Joshua is a dramatic narrative uh, based allegory about how the people of God came into the land they possess. And to support their theory, uh, they point out that there's yet to be found a piece of archaeological evidence of the conquest. And this is odd. As a historian, you would think they would have found proof of many of the battles that are explained in the book of Joshua. They also point out that the language of conquest in the ancient Eastern world is always incredibly hyperbolic. It's exaggerated. It's rarely true. Is the book of Joshua borrowing this genre of historical record to tell us a larger story? It's also interesting to note that what God does and doesn't say. Oftentimes when our English Bibles translate the word destroy... Uh, the word in the Hebrew is often consecrate. Now, destroy is often a way of consecration, but not always. One could argue that, that God was leaving room for grace, that he wasn't commanding mass genocide. That explanation works in a lot of those cases, but not all of them. It's also worth noting that God is constantly meeting people on their own terms. It's true that the ancient biblical world spoke the language of war. It was one of the few ways that countries made statements about their gods. Our God consistently and constantly meets people where they're at, uses language of their day, and speaks his better truth into their lives. Was the conquest part of that? And then... I always have to remind myself of what was taking place in the land of Canaan and all the forms of pagan Amorite worship in whichever country you examine, you find horrific, inhumane abuses taking place. Over the course of centuries in the land of Canaan, Amorite worship without exception 
involved child sacrifice and shrine prostitution. They found ancient Canaanite baby graveyards bigger than cities filled with thousands and tens of thousands of infant corpses. I want you to hear what what God says to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Their sin hadn't reached its full measure. You mean to tell me that God is impatient for over 500 years with this garbage? One of the things that I'm trying to learn from the conquest is that I'm glad I'm not God because I wouldn't do his job very well. I wouldn't know when to show grace and mercy and patience or when to call in the armies of heaven and the armies of man and stop that madness. And I realize I've given you probably far more questions than answers. I do know this. The conquest, the book of Joshua, isn't just about victory and triumph. That's how a lot of us read it in our Western world. The biblical narrative is more about location. The question is, why this chunk of dirt? Why does God work so hard to give his people this particular chunk of real estate? I have a map. Y'all see it okay? Basically, you have all the kingdoms that you're going to deal with in the biblical world uh, represented on your map. To the left, yeah, to the left there you will notice Rome, and it's going to be quite a later date in the biblical story, but Rome, you've got Greece over there, and then go to the right, you can see kingdoms like uh, Assyria, Persia, uh, Babylon. To the bottom left on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, you're going to see Egypt. And then over there to the bottom right, that's the Arabian Desert. Uh, in the biblical era, there is nothing that lives there. It's uncivilized. Uh, you, you're going to have a spice trade. There's an eastern trade route that goes that way but through that area. But there is nothing other than that that's out there. It's just wasteland. It's what the Hebrew says, midbar. It's desert. It's desert in that location. And the chunk of dirt that God gives his people is in that little bit of green right there on the right side of the Mediterranean Sea. Historians have often, often called that little area the crossroads of the earth. If it sits right in between the Sea of Galilee and, and the Dead Sea. Well, I guess we all need teachers. If so... I want you to think, think about this. If, if you wanted to go anywhere in the ancient world, you've got to cross through this chunk of dirt. It was the most prized chunk of real estate because if, if you wanted to control trade, if you wanted to have an impact on commerce, this is a place to be. If you wanted to be smack dab in the middle of everything, this is where you're going to be. I want you to think back to our story. God's promise to Abraham, I'm, I'm going to use your descendants, which are more numerous than the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashore. 
I'm going to take them and I'm going to become a blessing. I want you to be a blessing to how many nations? All nations. If that's still God's mission, do you think God probably still has something going on here in the book of Joshua? If so, he's not going to put his representatives over in the corner. He's not going to put them south of Egypt. He's not going to give them a little slice of the Arabian desert. If God really wants to bless nations, if, if God is really adamant about putting the whole world back together and he wants his kingdom of priests to partner with him and help, then this makes sense. God is putting his representatives right in the middle. And I still believe that he does that today. God doesn't want us, the Canadian Church of Christ, whether you identify with us today as a member or if you're just checking things out, the message is still the same. God doesn't want us in a safe, holy huddle behind closed doors off to the side where we're not impacting and engaging our culture, where we aren't making the places that we visit better where we're not engaging Canadian or Perryton or Miami or every place we venture or our school hallways or locker rooms or workplace or our homes. The danger is we can disengage from the mission of God and in doing so, we're no longer doing the things that God has called us to do which is to shine light into dark places. It's to offer reconciliation and forgiveness to those who we think don't deserve it. It's to destroy our pride and our arrogance and to do whatever it takes to reach people with the wonderful news of Jesus. It's to bring shalom to chaos. And I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how to close today we could have and probably should have just talked about Jericho walls falling down and Rahab or, I don't know, any of the stories in Jericho or in Joshua, but I, I didn't know what to do. Um, so I want to leave you with this. As you read and reread Joshua, as you talk about it in life groups and at home with your families, with your spouse, with your kids. In the midst of the stories of conquest, the greater stories, the ones that rise to the top are stories of people being saved and redeemed. The story of Rahab. Think about how God uses her lineage to bring in peace, to bring in the Messiah, to bring in the anointed one. King Jesus comes through her lineage. Many also say her story reminds us of Passover. The story of the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9 is again about a story of bargaining and then escaping destruction. It seems though that the writer, the author of Joshua, highlights, they want to highlight the stories of salvation, not destruction. So I'm glad that before I've gotten to Joshua, I've had the books of the Torah, Moses' books to read up to this point. I'm glad that I've been impressed with God's character over and over again. And I'm pretty confident that God is love. I'm pretty confident 
He wants us to build Ebenezer's memorials, tangible, physical monuments in our lives, in our families' lives to remember what God has done and to point us to what he's going to do, to remind us of his goodness and how he provides. So, and I say this half-heartedly, I'm going to try, I think. I'm going to try to resolve to let God do his job I'm going to wrestle with the killings that were done in his name. I'm going to trust that he works through us. He partners with us. And sometimes in our really dark days of conquest, he works in spite of us. I'm still trying to learn how to trust the story. And I wonder if Joshua was too. If you have more questions than answers, it's okay. I know God can work in that. I know that here in a minute we're going to probably stand together. We're going to sing a closing song. If you're wrestling with anything in your own walks with God, not that it's your own, but in your community walk with God, in your faith, we have some men and women who would love to pray with you, pray over you, to walk this with you, whatever that need may be, or whatever you want to celebrate God doing, we welcome those too. If you do have a need, we're going to stand together and sing our closing song.